Thanks, Dave. Uh, it's great to be here. It'd be great uh, if you got your keep your Bible open uh, there at that passage. Uh, there'll be some uh, words come up on the screen as we go along uh, as well, so that might be helpful for us. Hey, I wonder if you've ever done that thing where you're in a conversation with someone and as you're going into the conversation, you kind of guess what you think they're going to say. And so you answer according to what you think they were going to say, but they didn't actually say it, so you get the conversation all wrong. Have you ever done that? I did it this week at uni. I went to um, get a coffee, as I usually do each morning. I know the barista there reasonably well. We have small talk. We know each other's names. Uh, and I also know, actually, that when it's quite busy at that cafe, um, she doesn't do the small talk because you've got to get the orders, get the coffees through, that sort of thing. So, so I know that. I get that. She's got a job to do. Uh, it was busy Wednesday morning, so I thought, well, I'll, you know, I, I thought I knew how the conversation was going to go because it was pretty busy. So this is how the conversation went. Uh, I went in, I said, good morning. She said, oh, good morning, Steve. How's your morning been so far? I said, flat white, please. <laughs> and that was it. Felt weird, felt awkward, felt pretty stupid. Uh, but you've probably done maybe a similar thing. You ever had... Uh, that moment where you, you feel like someone's just, you're walking towards someone, maybe you don't know them that well, uh, and you think they're just going to say hi, but they don't. They actually say, how are you? So they say, how are you? And you say, hi, and you keep walking. You done that one? Or, or maybe it goes the other way, right? Um, th they're coming towards you, uh, and, and they say hi, and you say, yeah, well, thanks. <laughs> you know, you done that? We've all done it, haven't we? That kind of, it's not deliberate. It's kind of funny. We feel pretty stupid uh, after we've done it. Uh, but I actually wonder, I was thinking about this. I think sometimes as Christians, we actually do do that, but deliberately. You know what I mean? You know when someone comes up to you and they say, hey, Steve, how are you going? And you go, yeah, well, thanks. And not everything is all that well, thanks. Well, they say, hey, how are you going? Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, really good. Uh, when actually things aren't... I think this is a special skill that Christians develop over years. Uh, it's not a good skill, but I think it's one that we, we get our church clothes on. It's the only time I ever wear this shirt. Um, we put our church faces on, get our church words out. Sometimes we muster up all the strength we've got just to get our Sunday best out and get through Sunday. I don't know if that's how you're feeling today. I get why we do it. Uh, it's actually a bit of a form of self-protectiveness, isn't it? I mean, if every time someone asked me, how are you going, and I just opened up and let go on everything, that would be pretty wild, wouldn't it? Like, and if you did that to me, like, that would be overwhelming for you. It would be overwhelming for me. I get why we kind of do it. Um, but sometimes we actually do hide the real us, don't we? We, we put on a face and we kind of say, yeah, yeah, everything's good, everything's good. And I guess today, if you've come here and maybe not everything is all that good, maybe you don't feel like everything is okay, I hope that this letter in the church to Philadelphia might be really helpful for you. I know it has been for me this week. I don't know if you picked it up as, as Dave uh, read those words to us, uh, but the people in this church, they feel pretty weak. They feel pretty small. Uh, and it doesn't matter how much they try to cover it up. 
Jesus knows how they feel. Did you see it there, verse 8? Verse 8, Jesus says to them, I know you have little strength. Or some versions say little power. I know you have little strength. I, I know you have little power. Jesus comes to this church and he says, I know you feel weak. I know you feel small. I know that you feel like giving up. Jesus knows their situation, right? He gets them. And I guess today, this morning, what I want to do is I don't want to simply say, hey, church, let's be more real. Let's try and muster up some more strength and, you know, put on a braver face. And No, no, no. What I want us to do today is I actually want us to see Jesus. I want us to see his strength, see his power, see his love. I want us to see again what he's done for us in the gospel. I want us to see what he will do for us, what he promises us. What he promises weak people who have little power. And I hope in doing so that seeing his strength will actually strengthen us. That's my prayer for us. That when we're feeling weak, it will actually be truths that come out of this passage today that strengthen us. If you've been here over the past few weeks, you would know that we're in this series, the letters to the seven churches, seven first century churches. Uh, we're up to number six, and each week it'll come up on the screen, there's been a bit of a pattern, the way Jesus has spoken to the churches. Uh, you see there, um, Jesus says, dear church, it's from Jesus, he describes himself in a particular way. He commends them, he says what, what he loves about them, what they're doing well, he critiques them, what he has against them, he calls them to change in some way, and then he ends with an amazing promise for those who heed the call. But what you might have noticed, what you need to notice about this letter to this church in Philadelphia is that there is no complaint. There is no critique. This church only receives praise and approval from Jesus. There's no complaint, there's no critique. No, instead, in verse 8, to this group of people who feel small, who feel of little power, Jesus comes to them and he just wants to encourage them. He just wants to encourage them and he says, in spite of your feelings, whatever it is why you're feeling small and weak, whether it's your lack of size, whether it's your lack of influence, whatever it is, he comes to them and he says, you have faithfully kept my word. You have been faithful to me, he says. Thank you. There's a whole bunch of reasons uh, why maybe this church feels of little power. Uh, maybe it was persecution. Uh, you see here in these verses, uh, Jesus says, in the face of persecution, they refused to deny his name. Uh, maybe it was that people threatened them. Uh, maybe it was that the culture mocked them. Uh, we saw that in some of the previous churches. Here in verse 9, at least, we see that this particular church are being slandered by the Jewish community. I imagine that the temptation for them to maybe give up on Jesus would be really strong. They're feeling really weak. But Jesus comes to them and he says, you have stood firm. You have been faithful. Well done. He comes to applaud their efforts. And I think in this letter, he actually gives them four words of encouragement. Four words of encouragement about his power and what he does. 
Uh, before we get there, though, um, let's have a look firstly at verse 7 and have a look at this description that Jesus gives of himself. Who is this one who speaks these encouraging words? Well, you see there, he describes himself as the one who is holy and true. The one who holds the key of David. What do those phrases mean? Well, I take it to be holy and true. That means that Jesus is good, doesn't it? It means he's pure. He's holy. It means he won't hurt you. It means he has no malice, no deceit in him. He's genuine. He's faithful. He's gracious. He's compassionate. He's strong. He's dependable. He's consistent. You can rely on him. You can trust him like you can trust no other person. If you're someone here today and you don't know Jesus like that, let me encourage you to maybe pick up one of the Gospels this afternoon, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, read through it. Just read through it and you'll see that Jesus is good. Jesus lived a life of love like no one has ever lived before. He is holy, he is true, he is good. But more than that, it says here, he alone holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And I take it, it was for me, this term is a bit of a cryptic one for us, isn't it? What does this mean? What does it it mean uh, that he holds the key of David? Well, this verse is actually a quotation from the Old Testament. It comes up in Isaiah chapter 22, uh, where uh, the Old Testament Isaiah talks about a man called Eliakim. You may not be that familiar with Eliakim. I certainly wasn't. Um, Eliakim is actually a servant in David's palace. And Eliakim was the servant who was given the keys to the door of the palace. Eliakim was the one who had control to either admit or exclude people from going in and seeing and being with the king. Eliakim was the one with the authority for who got in, who got to see the king. And what Jesus does here in this verse is he actually picks up that reference and he says, actually, no, no, that's about me and the greater king. He says, I'm actually the true and the better Eliakim because I hold the key, the key of David, I hold the key to the Davidic kingdom. I hold the key to the Messianic kingdom. Jesus, I think, is saying in this verse that he is the one with undisputed authority to admit or exclude people from the great King God and the New Jerusalem. And we know this of Jesus, right? He said it in John's Gospel, didn't he? He said this. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way in. He's the key. Jesus is saying here to Christians, he says, do you know Do you remember who I am? I'm the one who opened the door for you. I'm the one that got you in. Do you remember that? It was me. It was my power. It was my strength that got you in. It wasn't you. It wasn't your power. If you're feeling weak, I don't know. It was me. It was mine. I actually love um, what a guy called um, Tim Keller uh, used to say about Christianity and other religions. I don't know if you've You've heard much of his stuff on this. It was brilliant. Uh, he would actually talk about how in every other religion, all the other major world religions, it's all about you and your power in order to get in. 
No, it's all about you being good, being good enough, doing the right things, walking the path, whatever it is, in order to appease the deity, whoever it is. And I think actually, you know, as I talk with my neighbours, as I talk with people up at uni, I actually think most of us Aussies kind of buy into that. We kind of instinctively believe that, don't we? Uh, we kind of instinctively think that if we're good enough, if we do enough good things, then we'll get in. If me, in my power, do more good than bad, then I'll be okay. We think that we have life a little bit like a scale. You know, if my good outweighs my bad, then the God, whoever it is, will surely let me in. But Keller would say, you know, when Jesus turns up, uh, Jesus actually comes and he says something super offensive. Jesus says no one is good except for him. Jesus says only he and he alone is good. None of us have lived the perfect life. Only he did. He and he alone is the only one who has always loved God and loved others like we ought. Jesus turns up and he actually exposes our weakness, doesn't he? He exposes our sins. He comes to us and he says something super offensive. He says, each one of us have failed to always be good. We failed to live up to God's standards. And I take it when we're really honest, we've even failed to live up to our own, haven't we? We've all failed to love God and love others like we ought. And so what that means, right, is that the good and the bad scale needs to be completely scrapped. We need to get rid of that good and the bad scale because there is no one who is good. What Keller says is this is why Christianity is completely different. Because it doesn't operate on a good and bad scale. What it actually operates on is proud and humble. He says when Jesus comes, the whole paradigm shifts. It moves from being good and bad to being proud and humble because Jesus comes to us and he says to us, will you in your pride still think you can be good enough? Or will you drop that pride and will you come humbly to me and say, I need your forgiveness. I need your life. I need you. I need you and your power because I am weak. And Jesus says, that's why I came. That's why I came. I came, Jesus says, to open the door that you could not open. I came to open the door and I did that with my death on a cross. So all your badness will fall on me and all his goodness falls on you. It's the great exchange. Jesus shifts the conversation completely. And he comes to this church and he says to all of us who deserve to be shut out, he said, you can come in because of his power. To this little church, he comes and he says, church, remember that truth, won't you? Remember, it was me that got you in. It was my power. I was the one, Jesus says, who died. I was the one who rose. I'm the one who sent the spirit to open your eyes so you could believe it was me. It was my power. In verse 8, he goes on, he says, and what I open, no one can shut. What I open, no one can shut. Do you see, when Jesus opens the door, 
of the kingdom to his people. No one can shut them out. So remember that truth, friends. It's Jesus and his power that gets us in. That's what he comes and says to this weak church. Firstly, it's all about me. It's about my power. I got you in. But secondly, you keep reading and he says, it's also my power that keeps you in. I mentioned earlier about feeling weak, about feeling like giving up sometimes. I don't know what it is that maybe for you is making you feel that way. Uh, maybe you've been just through some really hard stuff lately and it's exhausting, it's overwhelming. Maybe there's been some past sins or even present sins and they're just having a real effect on your life. Maybe it's financial strain, relational stress. I don't know what it might be, but there's often these things that are in our lives, I take it, for each one of us, and they make us feel weak, right? They make us feel like we have little strength. And, and for this church in Philadelphia, what was going on for them was they are on the receiving end of lies and slander. Do you see it there in verses 8 and 9? Jesus says to them, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I've loved you. Now, we don't know all the details here about what's going on. But it seems that those Christians, these Christians in this church in Philadelphia, they've been on the receiving end of lies and slander from the local Jewish synagogue which Jesus here actually calls the synagogue of Satan. And I, and I take it that's because these Jews, they would have been saying something like salvation is not found in Jesus alone. They would have been saying, no, 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 salvation is found somewhere else. It's found by keeping the law. It's found by being a child of Abraham, whatever it is. It's about you. It's about your power. I take it also that what these Jews would have been saying is that those Christians over there, that church, they're leading everyone astray. But the reality is that it was these ethnic Jews that were leading the people astray, wasn't it? Because they failed to see that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Jesus is the one who fulfills the promises to Abraham. Jesus is the one who holds the key of the Davidic kingdom. And I think Jesus, do you see it? He uses really strong language here. He says what they are saying in that synagogue is satanic. Did you see that? I don't know if you remember. Jesus actually said a very similar thing to his disciple Peter. Do you remember that? That moment when Peter came to Jesus and he said, no, 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 Jesus, there must be another way. You won't go to the cross. No, 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 you won't have to die, Jesus. There must be another way. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And that's because Jesus knows that what Satan wants us to believe is that it is about us and our power, but not about Jesus and his. Satan wants us to think that we can do it in our power, in our strength, and not rely on Jesus. And so Jesus says here, he says, those people that oppose you, 
One day they will see that they are wrong. One day their lies will be exposed. And you see at the end of verse 10, it says, One day I will make them fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Isn't that an amazing promise of assurance for those who have trusted in Jesus? For, for these Christians who feel small and weak and excluded and lied about and have kept the faith, Jesus says, I love you. You're on the right side and one day all will see. Incredible. I don't know if you've ever doubted whether it matters to Jesus that you've kept the faith, that you've stayed the course, that you've been faithful. I look around a room like this and I see that there are people who have been faithful for longer than I've lived, maybe twice as long. Stayed the course, committed to Jesus. Maybe you've wondered if it's all been worth it. Maybe you haven't always got your name in the church bulletin. Maybe you haven't got one of those little brass plaques on a seat just yet. You're wondering, is it worth it to keep going with Jesus? Maybe your mates at work laugh at you, mock you. Maybe your family members consider you a fool. Jesus says, I love you. And one day all will see. Now, I don't know if that's a word that you need to hear this morning. That if you're on team Jesus, you're on the winning team. I love you, says Jesus. You're on the right side and one day all will see. See, friends, Jesus is not only the one who powerfully saves us. He's also the one who powerfully keeps us and protects us. It's him and his power that saves us by his death, by his resurrection. And as we keep reading in verse 9 and 10, we see it's also him and his power that keeps us to be his and protects us. Look at um, verse 10. Oh, this is a bit of a tricky verse. Uh, I'll read it out. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so no one will take your crown. I don't know what you think when you look at that verse. I think it's a bit of a tricky text. It's a few smiles around the room, so maybe you agree with me. Um, what is this hour of trial that's going to come on the whole world and test the inhabitants of the earth? Um, well, there's lots of opinions. Uh, some people say it's a, it may have been a physical event uh, that happened in that region not long after this letter was written and the Philadelphian church was spared from it. Some say it's an event that we're still waiting for where Jesus will protect Christians from a worldwide trial. Some use this text to support um, a pre-tribulation rapture, if you know what I mean by that. Some believe it's about end-time judgment, how Christians who endure with Jesus will be protected and kept safe on that last day. I think there's a, a few things we can say here. Uh, firstly, I think we need to say that the word hour doesn't necessarily have to mean 60 minutes. 
Uh, it, it actually means a period of time in John's writings. Um, you might remember in John's Gospel, Jesus often referred to his time of trial or his death as an hour. He said, my hour is not yet come. My hour is not yet here. Then he says, oh, my hour has come. And then he goes to his trial and his death. Uh, also, I think here in verse 10, the word that's translated as trial, it's actually not a very common word uh, in the New Testament. It's the word pyradzo from Greek. And it's actually the same word that gets consistently translated for tempting or testing. That's the word we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the word that was used when Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. Uh, it's the word in Hebrews chapter 2 that speaks of how when Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted. And I take it that it's for those reasons that I actually lean towards perhaps Jesus is saying to the Philadelphian Christians something like this. I will protect you from the greatest danger, the temptation that Satan throws your way. Remember 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter wrote these words. He said, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of trials. Remember those words? I mean, I, I could be way off the mark here. It's dangerous to say that, isn't it? But I wonder if Jesus is promising Christians spiritual protection from the schemes of the evil one. I wonder if Jesus is actually coming to these Christians and who are feeling weak and powerless and he's saying to them, I will sustain you. I will protect you. No matter what Satan throws at you, I am stronger than him. I will keep you. And I say that because I think that's what he promises in verse 11. When you keep reading, he says, I am coming soon. And again, maybe this is his physical coming at the end. We know that Jesus will come one day and he will wipe away Satan, sin, death, suffering. It's going to be glorious. He will set up the new Jerusalem. It's going to be amazing. We know he will do that in a physical way. But I wonder, could it be in this text that he's not actually speaking about his physical coming at the end of time, but he's talking about his spiritual coming in the meantime? Could it be he's saying, I will come to you by my spirit and provide comfort and power for you to persevere through the trials in your life? When you're feeling weak and discouraged and tempted, verse 11, he says, hold on to me and I will draw near. I will come. I will sustain your soul. I will comfort you. I will strengthen you. I will protect you. You know, you might remember over the past few weeks, as we've been looking at these churches, Jesus has said a similar thing, hasn't he? That he will come to the church. To the church in Ephesus, to Pergamon, in Sardis. He actually said to them, if they don't repent, he will come and do what? Discipline them. Well, surely if he can come in that way to discipline them, 
then don't you think he can also come to this church in Philadelphia to strengthen them, to bless them, to build them up, to protect them? And I take it if he can come to the church in Philadelphia in the first century, then can't he also come to you today, to our church, and by his spirit strengthen you and give you the power you need to endure the trials you're going through? He's got the power to do that, friends. He's got the power to save us. He's got the power to keep us. He's got the power to protect us. And finally, he finishes this letter by saying that with that same power, he will welcome us forever into his kingdom. Have a look there at this amazing promise in verse 12. In verse 12, he says there, To the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming out of heaven from my God. I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you see here, to this weak, fragile group of Christians, maligned and lied about, he says, I will turn your weakness to strength. I will turn your weakness to strength. I will welcome you in and I will make you a pillar in my temple. The strongest part. I will turn your insecurity to security. Do you see it there? Never again will you have to leave. I will turn your malign name into a glorious name. I will give you my name and the name of my city I will write on you. Incredible promises from Jesus. What does this all mean for us? I take it it means that the weak rely on the strong. Those who have little power rely on the one who is most powerful. And I take it that maybe it could also mean that when we meet one another, when we have those conversations, hi, how are you? We don't have to muster up some sort of false strength. We can be honest, can't we? We can drop the facade and we can say, you know what, I'm not doing that great. But I know someone who is. I'm feeling pretty weak. But I'm trusting in someone who's powerful. And maybe if we have a conversation like that, we'll just see what sort of doors it opens. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that we can, as weak, fragile people, tempted and often fallen. Father, we thank you that we can look to your cross and see your great love and forgiveness and grace to us. Father, if it was about us and our power, we, we never had a chance. But because of your goodness to us in Jesus, we have hope. Father, I praise you that that we can remember that it's your power that saves us, that keeps us, that protects us, and will one day welcome us in. So, Father, please help these, these truths to strengthen us today, to keep living, to keep holding on to Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.